you regret taking the stand? Trying to appeal? Do you have anything to say to John Kerry Roo? I'm John Kerry Roo. And this is the final episode of Bad Blood, the final chapter. On Monday, January 3rd, after a four-month trial and over 50 hours of deliberations stretching over seven days, the jury in the United States versus Elizabeth Holmes found the Theranos founder guilty on four of 11 charges. She was found not guilty on four other counts. And on the remaining three, the jury could not reach a unanimous decision. The following statement was issued by the U.S. Attorney for the Northern District. And she has said, the jurors in this 15-week trial navigated a complex case amid a pandemic and scheduling obstacles. I thank the jurors for their thoughtful and determined service that ensured verdicts could be reached. The guilty verdicts in this case reflect Ms. Holmes' culpability in this large-scale investor fraud, and she must now face sentencing for her crimes. On today's episode, we revisit the drama of the verdict. We dissect its meaning and why the jury wasn't able to agree on three counts. And we discuss the pieces of evidence that we think sealed Holmes's fate. We also examine what comes next for Holmes. Each guilty count carries a maximum term of 20 years, but whether she goes to prison and for how long are very much open questions. And what about the people she heard along the way? Well, you're going to hear from one of them. That's all after the break. I'm joined by my colleague, Emily Saul, who was in the courtroom in San Jose every single day of this trial for four months. Emily, Monday was an absolutely crazy day. Can you describe for us what happened? Absolutely. So Monday was um, was nuts. Uh, you know, it was our seventh day of deliberations. And like every other day, it was just, you know, get there early to stand in line and then wait in a hallway for any notice of anything. And then, uh, you know, mid-morning, uh, we received a note from the jury that said that they could not agree on the three charges. And so they were brought into the courtroom and, um, you know, we couldn't get a sense from them uh, of, you know, their emotional state. They avoided eye contact with Holmes, but nobody looked particularly distressed. Judge Davila read them what's called an Allen charge or a shock charge, which basically reminds them that they took an oath to serve and that they better return a verdict. <laughs> and so, um, you know, they, they went back in and then later that afternoon, they sent out a fourth note saying they still could not um, could not agree on these three charges. Um, one thing that's interesting that I don't think the jury knew, but uh, if they had not sent out that note on Monday saying that they were still hung, um, deliberations could have lasted longer because the Allen charge can technically only be read once a day. Otherwise, it can be considered coercive and a basis for appeal. Um, so if they had come back on Tuesday um, with, you know, another note, they probably would have gotten the Allen charge again. But instead, you know, they said, we're still hung. And the judge said, okay, please return to the deliberation room and fill out your verdict sheet. Um, and so then everybody went back uh, and they did not immediately return with a verdict sheet. And, you know, there are 
11 counts on here. It doesn't take that long to uh, fill out a document um, with guilties or not guilties or no verdicts in three cases. And um, so then everybody started to wonder, are we getting a verdict today? Um, it, uh, you know, it seemed like maybe they were not decided on other counts as well or something could change. And then uh, at the end of the day, the jurors sent out another note, the third of the day, saying, we've reached a unanimous verdict, uh, which was further confusing because then, uh, you know, we weren't clear on whether or not they had changed their mind on those hung counts or not. But, um, you know, now ultimately everybody knows uh, they had not. And she was convicted of uh, four counts, acquitted of four, and we have no verdict on three. So, Emily, describe to us what happened when the jury came back into the courtroom how the verdict was read, and and most of all, what Elizabeth Holmes's reaction was. So once we knew we had a verdict, uh, you know, the jury was called back in. Uh, the jury foreperson was identified uh, as juror number two. He had a green envelope in his hand that had the verdict sheet in it. That was passed to the judge. And, um, you know, he looked it over. He said, uh, you haven't dated this. And so then, you know, suspense continues to rise as it's passed back and dated. And then the verdict was read into the record by the courtroom deputy, Adriana Kratzman. Um, and, you know, it's always, there's there's nothing like verdict adrenaline. <laughs> um, you know, it's very, very tense. You're just waiting for each word to come out. Um, and, uh, you know, Number one, uh, guilty of the charge of conspiracy to commit wire fraud against Theranos investors. Um, total silence in the courtroom. Zero response from Holmes. Zero response from her family. She's sitting up totally straight, not looking at the jury. Uh, you know, count number two, not guilty of the charge of conspiracy to commit wire fraud against Theranos paying patients. Still no movement from her, still no movement from her family. Sometimes people scream in the gallery when there's a verdict, none of that. It was just completely and totally silent as Adriana Kratzman went through the entire verdict sheet. And then, so of course, the, the three other uh, guilty counts were read and, and still she didn't move. So she took it really stoically, it sounds like. She did. There, the only movement I noted from her was after count eight, guilty um, of the charge of wire fraud against uh, Theranos investor Daniel Mosley. Um, she started swaying a little bit side to side in her chair, but it was very, very slight. And that was the only reaction at all that I gauged from her or her family. Um, you know, after a verdict is read, a judge polls the jurors, um, meaning, you know, they're asked, uh, you know, juror number one, is this your verdict? Juror number two, is this your verdict? Just to give everybody a chance to, you know, raise their hand and say, actually, no, I don't agree. Um, and when that happened, she did look over to the jury. But other than that, she, um, she betrayed nothing. So it took seven days of deliberations, more than 50 hours. Um, and it seemed to take forever because those seven days were actually spread out over two weeks, right? Over the, the week of Christmas and over the week of New Year's. And finally, we got the verdict on Monday uh, uh, at the beginning of 2022. So this case actually spanned two calendar years. But history shows that this is actually the norm in white collar cases. 
you know, in the Enron case uh, back in uh, the mid 2000s, uh, I believe it took a jury six days of deliberations to convict Jeff Skilling um, and uh, Kenneth Lay. Uh, it took a jury uh, 12 days to convict Conrad Black. So, Emily, um, you are a veteran of covering uh, these types of court cases, and you weren't necessarily surprised that it took as long as it did. I was not surprised. Um, I I will say after, in the white-collar cases that I've covered in the past, it's typically three to five days. Um, And, you know, it was obvious from the beginning, uh, because the juror's first note was, can we take home the law, that they were going to be very serious about the way they approached this. I will say, after we passed day six was when I uh, began to wonder if there was some sort of holdout or not. And, and you had told me even before deliberations began that you thought there was a high chance of a hung uh, verdict. Um, and I definitely uh, thought that the, the case was on a knife's edge. And um, so I didn't, I didn't really know what to think. Let's talk about that verdict. It seems to me like a really thoughtful and nuanced verdict. Here's why. It was always going to be a tough case to make that Holmes intended to defraud patients. I mean, what she did, going live with technology that didn't work, with workarounds that didn't work, that was reckless. Yes, absolutely. It was outrageous. But that's medical battery, which is a civil charge. And that wasn't the charge here. The charge here was fraud. The allegation here was that she intended to defraud patients, that she intended to make money from patients illegally. And it seemed like that was always going to be a harder case to make. And in fact, one of the jurors gave an interview to ABC News, um, and uh, he said that they acquitted her on those patient counts because she was, quote, one step removed from the patients. And it was therefore a bridge too far to convict her of defrauding them. Uh, Emily, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. I think the government went about trying to prove these counts in a somewhat backward way um, and a way that was was very confusing. Um, you know, they ultimately are saying that Holmes, you know, per the charges, intended to defraud patients um, by, one, you know, paying an advertising company, um, and then, two, you know, playing with advertising copy and what information was maybe on the website, then three, attempting to establish that these patients saw the ads that Holmes had something to do with, and then that's ultimately what made them decide to go into a clinic and pay for their test, which is actually the charge, you know, that they were defrauded of the 30 or some odd dollars for that test. Um, So it's just, it's a series of steps uh, through which they, they, you know, each step leaves a little bit more room for reasonable doubt. And, uh, you know, we did, we, we know she did certain things, but ultimately on the patient counts, you know, it, she was incredibly far removed. Now let's talk about the, the three counts uh, for which the jury was hung. Uh, those uh, related to uh, the investor Chris Lucas and his uh, venture capital fund, uh, Black Diamond Ventures, the investor, the Texas investor, Craig Hall, and uh, the uh, individual investor, Alan Eisenman. Um, now, it's true. When you look at the evidence and you look back at their testimonies, it's true that for these three investors, the evidence was less compelling. 
Why was it less compelling? Because simply because those three investors invested earlier. They invested before Elizabeth Holmes gave her interview uh, to Fortune magazine, to Roger Parloff's Fortune magazine, and told those lies. Uh, the, the investments took place before she started circulating the slide decks with all the false statements in them, uh, including uh, the forged pharmaceutical reports, the pharmaceutical reports with the forged logos. Um, and, and, and then uh, the, the main piece of evidence for those three counts that jurors had to go on was the tape that uh, Craig Hall's associate, Brian Tolbert, took of the investor call in late 2013. And while uh, some of the things that Elizabeth said during that call can be interpreted as, as lies or half-truths, it's pretty ambiguous when it comes down to it. And, and some uh, of the jurors felt that the evidence wasn't there beyond a reasonable doubt uh, for those counts. Uh, it seems to me like this was a really thoughtful jury. What do you think, Emily? I mean, I agree. Uh, I absolutely agree. I think they showed that from, you know, from the beginning of the case. This is the first trial I have ever covered where not a single, I, there was a single day <laughs> uh, since this case started where someone was late and they were approximately 10 minutes late and they sent a note. They have been here on time every day. Uh, I have not caught a single juror sleeping. Um, they have diligently been taking notes. Uh, this is the best behaved um, jury that I have ever seen. And they obviously took this very, very seriously. And this verdict sheet reflects that. You know, they went through the evidence. Uh, they parsed out what they felt was guilty and what they felt wasn't guilty. And then were also honest about where they couldn't make a decision. You know, sometimes there are backroom deals and in, in, um, in deliberations. You know, jurors say, okay, well, if you want to convict on this, then we'll acquit on this and blah, blah, blah. That obviously didn't happen here. These people were, um, these people were very, very, very professional in performing their duties. All right, let's talk about um, the four counts uh, that Elizabeth was convicted on. Uh, one count was uh, a count of conspiracy to defraud investors, and the other three counts were individual fraud counts relating to the hedge fund PFM, to the uh, billionaire DeVos family, and to the uh, estate attorney from Cravath, uh, Dan Mosley. Um, and, and those were the investors who invested the most money. When you, when you put uh, their three investments together, uh, Brian Grossman's healthcare fund within PFM invested some 36 or $38 million in Theranos. The DeVos family invested $100 million in Theranos. And Dan Mosley in, invested $6 million of his own money in Theranos. You add it up, um, it comes to more than $140 million. And I think the reason uh, Elizabeth Holmes was convicted on those four counts had to do with... Uh, three pieces of evidence in, in particular that sealed her fate. One was the pharmaceutical reports on which she forged logos that she then peddled uh, to Walgreens and Safeway. Uh, these were uh, reports on uh, pilot projects that Theranos had once done with these pharmaceutical companies. There were reports that were written by Theranos, um, and there were reports that uh, absolutely did not indicate that the pharmaceutical companies uh, validated or endorsed Theranos technology. And yet, Holmes copped on the stand on direct examination to adding those logos, to essentially forging those reports. And then on cross-examination, 
uh, prosecutors showed that it wasn't just the, the logos that were added, uh, that she also deleted a text that was less favorable from some of those reports and added text that was more favorable. The other piece of evidence that I thought uh, sealed Holmes's fate uh, was the Parloff tapes. Uh, the tapes that uh, the journalist uh, Roger Parloff uh, made of Holmes while he was interviewing her for his Fortune magazine profile, um, there were some outright lies on those tapes, some black and white lies. Unlike uh, the uh, late 2013 investor call, which is more ambiguous, some of the things Holmes told Parloff were just plain lies. Uh, the biggest that comes to mind is the moment where he asks to see the lab, and she says to him, uh, you've already seen it because you've already seen the black and white devices and, and the research area at our headquarters. And uh, those are the same devices that we have in the lab. We have just a larger bank of those devices in our lab. That was absolutely not true. Uh, in the lab, Theranos had third-party machines that were both modified and unmodified. Um, the jurors heard uh, that lie with their own ears, and I thought it was incredibly damning. Uh, it wasn't the only one, uh, but it was the one that stood out the most for me. The third piece of evidence that I think sealed Holmes's fate on these counts were the texts between Elizabeth and Sonny. And uh, the prosecution, I thought, did a, a terrific job of reminding uh, the jury of those uh, texts in closing arguments. Jeff Schenk, in particular, uh, in uh, his closing argument, reminded jurors of uh, the time when CMS came to inspect Theranos in late 2015, and Sonny and Elizabeth are sending texts to each other saying that they're praying. In one text, Elizabeth says, praying literally nonstop. Um, and that obviously sounds like someone who knows they've done something wrong and is praying that they're not going to be caught. Um, there were other texts uh, there, there were, that were also uh, very damning. Uh, there was the moment when uh, my first Wall Street Journal story is published in October of 2015, and Sonny is on the phone with a Walgreens executive who is furious that they're learning uh, through the Wall Street Journal and not from Theranos itself that Theranos has stopped using the nanotainer and has stopped finger stick testing. And uh, in their text, Holmes suggests to Sonny that they lie to Walgreens. And Balwani, to his credit, Sonny, to his credit, says bad idea. They know. Again, th this showed her to be someone who was the ringleader and, and who was the one uh, who was suggesting uh, doing the misleading. I thought uh, that that was incredibly damning. And, and I just felt that, that um, you know, when, when you look back at the, the four months of this trial, the, the three pieces of evidence that really stood out as, as devastating for her were the forged logos on the pharmaceutical reports, the Parloff tapes and her lies on the Parloff tapes and the texts uh, that she sent Sonny and that Sonny sent her. So after the break, we're going to discuss Elizabeth Holmes' Svengali defense and why it didn't work and what comes next. Sentencing. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So, Emily, in the end, the Svengali defense didn't work. I thought that it was a brilliant way to try to sway the jury. I thought that if Elizabeth Holmes had a chance of getting off, it was going to be because she had won the juror's sympathy with the Svengali defense and with those abuse allegations. But, but I thought the government also did a really good job of addressing them uh, in their closing arguments. I thought uh, John Bostick in the rebuttal was brilliant. And uh, he told the jurors to set the abuse allegations aside as irrelevant to the case. It, he acknowledged to them uh, that they were troubling and uh, that uh, the jurors probably felt sympathy for Holmes as a result. But he made the case to them that uh, that's not what the case was about. Uh, and that they should really focus on the fraud charges and that these abuse allegations had nothing to do with the fraud charges and they should just set them aside. And according to an interview one juror gave to ABC, that's exactly what they did. They thought the allegations were credible, but they didn't find them relevant to the case. They didn't find them relevant to the fraud charges and they put them aside. So that gambit, which was the defense's best hope of securing an acquittal, failed. What were your thoughts on that, Emily? Yeah, so I mean, this was an interesting uh, an interesting decision by the defense. You know, they obviously didn't actually invoke the defense in full because they didn't call, uh, you know, an expert witness to testify about the effects of inter um, of intimate partner violence. Um, but that being said, I think one of the things that did not work in their favor was, you know, when she was asked on the stand, um, you know, did you know, how did this affect you? And, you know, did you make your own decisions? She ultimately said yes. So they brought it in for sympathy, but also, you know, didn't get close enough to the legal line where they actually needed to put this forward as a defense. And so ultimately it, um, you know, it was sort of a, a, a sideshow and, you know, jurors rightly, rightfully did uh, what Bostick told them to do, which was, you know, it's it's an uncomfortable allegation, you know, who it could have happened. We don't know, but it's it's not relevant here. And so it was completely appropriate that they they didn't talk about it. You, you pointed out something important, which is that in the end, the defense didn't uh, formally in, invoke what's called uh, Rule 12-2, uh, the mental defect defense, um, and they didn't uh, call to the stand Mindy Mechanic, Holmes' psychologist, to make the case that um, uh, the the abuse uh, and the domineering aspect of that relationship influenced uh, Holmes' thinking. And so as a result, um, it, it, it did just become sort of an irrelevant distraction. I wonder if it was a strategic mistake on the defense's part not to call Mechanic and not to formally invoke that defense. I mean, you know, the government said that if the defense called mechanic, they would call their own expert who spent times who spent time with Holmes as well. And, you know, I assume their own expert came back 
with uh, something that categorically said that, uh, you know, she was not in any way under Sonny's thrall and, um, you know, was able to make decisions by herself and, you know, had intent alone. And so, you know, I guess they they weighed the danger of that and decided it was not worth it. So speaking of uh, the Svengali defense, uh, which was all about making Holmes uh, sympathetic to the jury, uh, what did the jury uh, think of Holmes? And uh, we now know uh, from an ABC interview with uh, uh, several of the jurors that Holmes did uh, come off as sympathetic uh, to the jury, that they uh, found her to be a nice person, and they even believed that she believed in this vision of hers. Uh, But at the same time, they found her not credible when she took the stand. They had a point system from one to four to rank witnesses' credibility. And witnesses like the former retired general Jim Mattis and the former lab director Adam Rosendorf scored a four, the top grade in their system, while Holmes scored just a two. I personally think she did a lot of damage to her credibility on cross-examination when she stubbornly refused at several junctures to admit some obvious things. Um, I I thought that during those moments, uh, she showed her true colors and and that jurors saw it. Um, I also think uh, some of the prosecution witnesses, such as Rosendorf, uh, such as Erica Chung, such as Sarika, uh, the longtime Theranos employee who testified right after Erica, came off as unimpeachable witnesses. Uh, They just came off as incredibly... Uh, forthright and believable and full of integrity that um, Holmes, uh, by contrast, was bound uh, to not seem as credible. So one of the one of the things that stands out to me about this score of two is I think it actually, you know, it's it again shows how um, how to the law this jury worked because, you know, one of the parts of the jury charge is that, you know, they're supposed to individually evaluate each witness. And one of the things they're supposed to take into consideration is what each witness has to gain from testifying. And obviously Holmes, the defendant in this case, has nothing to lose and everything to gain. And so I think this again is a reflection of how seriously they took this I, I also think that uh, the fact that they gave a witness like Adam Rosendorf a top score of four means that uh, defense attorney Lance Wade's never-ending, meandering, sometimes very brusque uh, cross-examinations of witnesses uh, were ineffective. And, and that's pretty much just as we suspected uh, as we were watching him, Emily, don't you think? I think so. I mean, you know, in hindsight, looking back on this case, I really now am of the belief that the cross-examinations were to run the clock and to put the government into a bind in terms of what sort of evidence they could put forward, um, given the timetable that had been given to jurors. I, um, I fully believe that now. And I think it actually, you know, great if you can impeach a witness. But I, I I now believe, given that multiple cross-examinations exceeded uh, the time spent on direct, that that was the point of those uh, of those examinations. I think you're absolutely right. Um, it felt like they were running the clock. And, and in fact, I had a relative of Brian Grossman the day after he testified, um, who was in the courtroom watching uh, his cross-examination, who told me that they, they felt like all Wade was doing was dragging it out. Um, so I think you're absolutely right about that. So, Emily, let's now talk about what comes next for Elizabeth Holmes, a convicted felon. Uh, That is sentencing. Uh, 
Uh, we don't know when uh, sentencing will be yet. Um, uh, it's possible that a date will be set as early as next week, uh, but it could take months uh, before the judge hands down a sentence. And uh, the important thing to know about sentencing is that it's entirely at the judge's discretion. But there are federal guidelines, and many judges do uh, pay close attention to those guidelines and, and often follow those guidelines. And um, those guidelines lead me to think that Elizabeth Holmes is going to do real time. Um, and here's why. Uh, based on those guidelines, uh, the amount of money that she bilked from investors that she was convicted of bilking uh, from investors is $144 million. And according to the guidelines, that would equate uh, to uh, a term of about nine to 11 years. And then on top of that, there are other factors that can aggravate that prison sentence. One is that uh, she was undeniably a leader of this fraud. Another is that there were a lot of investors. Uh, the DeVos family is not just one investor, it's an entire family. Uh, the PFM uh, is a hedge fund that invests money on behalf of many investors. It's not just one entity. Uh, then there's the, the other investors who invested in the same round as PFM and the DeVosses. If she conspired uh, to defraud, which is one of the counts, then she conspired to defraud those investors as well, such as Rupert Murdoch, my former boss who owns the Wall Street Journal. On the other hand, Holmes is a first-time offender. She's a woman. She just had a baby. And she cried on the stand about being mentally and sexually abused by her former partner, Sonny Balwani, which uh, uh, may have moved uh, Judge Davila. Um, so taking all of these things into account, my gut tells me uh, that she's going to get uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of five years and that she'll be out in three for good behavior. Uh, Emily, I know you disagree with me. You have a different take on this. I do. I, you know, just having spent the last four months in the courtroom with Judge Davila, I I get the impression that, uh, you know, I think she'll get little to no time, uh, you know, given that we're still in COVID. Um, she could get some time, but that could be served as house arrest. The way that I see this playing out is Judge Davila focusing more on restitution. Um, and, uh, you know, she was convicted on these very, very high dollar counts. What I expect to see would be little to no time in custody, but with a very, very high, um, you know, amount of restitution to be paid out to victims. I think there are a couple of other things to point out here in terms of when we're thinking about Davila's sentencing. Um, you know, he doesn't have to exclusively consider the conduct that's charged when he's doing this. You know, he can also think back to, you know, her treatment of Erica Chung or Tyler Schultz or other people um, when he's making this decision. I think a lot of people don't know that judges really can consider anything and everything they want to when they're handing down a sentence. So, you know, he's potentially also um, weighing things like that. Uh, there's also, uh, you know, an aspect of sentencing is judges are really thinking about the message they're sending to other people, uh, you know, who could perpetuate a crime like this. And so it also really depends on whether or not uh, Judge Davila wants to send a message to Silicon Valley about fraud. Great point, Emily. Now, one thing that's really uh, interesting about this jury's mixed verdict, a uh, very nuanced, thoughtful verdict, a uh, verdict that took, by the way, a long time to reach, uh, is that it's going to be really hard to appeal. 
Um, and not just uh, the fact that, you know, it's a nuanced verdict that it took a long time to reach, but also that the judge overseeing the trial that led to this verdict bent over backwards to make the trial fair for the defendant. Um, it seems to me that all those ingredients are going to make it incredibly difficult to successfully appeal this verdict. Do you have any thoughts on that, Emily? What I would say about appeal is that, you know, what Holmes's defense team has shown throughout this trial is that, you know, they take advantage of every single opportunity to file anything possible in an attempt to either draw things out and or, you know, bog the prosecution down in paperwork and other things. So I would not be surprised to see an appeal coming from the defense on something very, very, very technical. Will it work? Who knows? But one of the other things is they can also ask that she remain out on bond pending appeal, and that could get her, you know, appeals take a long time. So that could get her, you know, three, four more years out if she does, in fact, receive um, an incarceratory sentence. So, Emily, you just brought up uh, what the defense is going to do uh, for an appeal, uh, namely, you know, pull every trick in the book. And that, to me, brings up a, a thought that I've had for a while and, and that I want to voice here about this whole trial, which is that Holmes had the best defense money could buy. I mean, uh, the, the people that I've spoken to, the defense attorneys I've spoken to, estimate that her defense probably cost more than $10 million. And her team had like 20 different attorneys. There was like an attorney for every motion that was argued. It was incredible. It was a platoon of attorneys. But in the end, it wasn't enough. Uh, in the end, the evidence won out and, and the jury convicted her and, and I believe reached the right outcome. So it makes me feel really good about our jury-based justice system. After the break, we're going to hear from one of the central characters in the Theranos saga and his reaction to the verdict. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters, and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. I first met Elizabeth when I was 20 years old, and I'm now 31. Oh my God. So it has consumed my entire adult life. My entire adult life. Listeners of this podcast will know how hard Elizabeth Holmes went after Tyler Schultz when he began to question whether Theranos technology really worked. She threatened him with a lawsuit. She had him followed by private investigators. She sent lawyers to ambush him. For Tyler, the story of Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos is a deeply personal one. He wasn't just a whistleblower. His grandfather, former Secretary of State and Theranos board member George Schultz, turned against him, siding with Elizabeth for years until the evidence against her became too much to ignore. So needless to say, Tyler, perhaps more than anyone else, was anxiously waiting for this verdict. We're eager to hear your thoughts, Tyler, about what transpired. How do you feel about the verdict and, and where were you when it came down and how did you learn about it and what was your reaction and so on and so forth? So earlier in the day when it seemed like a verdict might come, my parents called me and said, hey, come down and drink some champagne. 
Uh, regardless of, of what the outcome is, this is going to be over for us and we want to celebrate you and celebrate life no matter what happens. So come on down and we'll pop some champagne. And at the time, I kind of said, you know, I don't want to count any chickens before they hatch. I just want to try to have a somewhat normal day until the verdict actually does come out. Um, and then when the note came that said that they had the verdict ready, I just got on Twitter and I started refreshing as quickly as I could. Um, and then <laughs> I don't know why, but I, I actually I wasn't doing Twitter correctly and I wasn't getting the most recent updates. But my wife was at work and she was following it and she ended up texting me guilty. And I saw that pop up on my phone from my wife. And uh, I just I've just felt so good. Honestly, I was just I felt so relieved. I packed up a, a bag and drove down uh, to my parents house and we drank some champagne. And actually, my grandfather passed away not quite a year ago or about a year ago. And my step grandmother passed away maybe only a month or so ago. And so they've been kind of clearing out the house and they had a, just hundreds of bottles of wine and champagne in their basement. So um, my dad found this bottle of Dom Perignon from 1985 in the basement. Uh, and we figured what better time to pop that than, than right now. So we, we drank that in the backyard and uh, my brother made some homemade pizzas and it was it was a great night. <laughs> so so she's been found guilty, but we don't yet know what, um, you know, the sentence is going to be and, and whether or not she's going to prison. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, is there uh, is this a case where you feel that prison time is required? And, and if you've given any thought to this, um, what would be? you know, a fair, uh, appropriate sentence, uh, given the, the circumstances. Yeah. For me, I, I, I really wanted to see at least one guilty verdict and I got that and I feel vindicated and I, I'm less attached or I, I have less emotions around whether or not she goes to prison or for how long, if it's for six months, a year, five years, 10 years, um, I really don't care. <laughs> you know, my life doesn't change. I'm not going to interact with her ever again. So I, I really don't care. I just needed that one, at least one guilty verdict to be vindicated. Um, so having four was, was great. That was a win. Um, I think it's a little disappointing that all four were related to the investor fraud and not to the patient fraud. Um, because from my perspective, like people like Erica and I put our necks out on the line, not to save Betsy DeVos's $100 million, but to, you know, save patients from potentially getting bad medical results. But at the end of the day, um, she is guilty. And um, I think I, I'm counting it as a win for sure. <laughs> See, I, I totally agree with you. I think uh, a, a conviction on four counts is actually, uh, you know, it's pretty much all you need for for uh, the, the message to sink in. I think in Silicon Valley, I think it's also all you need for there to be a, a somewhat significant prison sentence. You didn't necessarily need all 11 counts. But I want to I want to uh, touch on a subject that's a little uh, a little sadder, um, which is that and and you. Uh, 
touched upon it earlier, which is that your grandfather, George Schultz, passed away uh, about 11 months ago um, at 100 years old. And so he never uh, got to see the, the, uh, you know, the, the final chapter, uh, so to speak, of this story. He never got to see the outcome. But uh, I'm wondering what your relationship with him was like in the, in the months and weeks before he passed away and, and also whether Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes ever came up again. Yeah, so, um, you know, once COVID came rolling around, I, I didn't ever see him face to face again because, you know, I didn't want to expose a 100-year-old man to, to anything. So the last time that I saw my grandfather face to face was probably the end of 2019. And I went over to his house and he told me a story that during Fleet Week in San Francisco, when the Navy brings in their ships and they have the Blue Angels fly over the city, he got Elizabeth invited to give a speech to um, United States Navy sailors. And this is before she was exposed. I don't know what the exact year was. And he said that with tears in her eyes, she told this group of young men and women that she was honored and humbled that her life's work would be saving the lives of United States servicemen and women. And he said he just could not believe that anybody could get in front of these people who would be willing to lay down their lives for our country and lie to them as confidently and convincingly as she lied. And even though he never apologized for anything, this was kind of his way of saying, I understand the, the extent to which she was a fraudster, the extent to which she was a pathological liar. Yeah, I mean, it sounds, it sounds from that anecdote like uh, he had uh, accepted in his mind that, that uh, uh, she was not an authentic person and that she had been lying and misleading. Um, I think you, you listened to our episode of the podcast about you and, and him and, and your relationship. Um, there was a, a new reveal in that episode, which is that um, uh, Elizabeth had granted uh, uh, George $50 million in, in stock. It's something I actually didn't know until more recently. I didn't know it when I was writing the book. Um, and I was wondering if that, uh, if that uh, revelation caught your attention and what you thought of it. Um, do, you think, do you think that that, uh, that stock, that very valuable stock, played, played a role in... in the way he behaved uh, back then? Yeah, I didn't really know how much stock he had until, you know, fairly recently, just like you. Um, and I think it definitely p played a role, but I don't think that it was the entire reason. I think I think it was a combination of, of a lot of things. I think it was a combination of the stock that he had and whatever kind of kinship that he felt towards Elizabeth. He, he loved her like a family member. And so I think it was a combination of that with the money um, just blinded him. When you and I first talked, I remember back in 2015, you told me about his passion for science and, and how optimistic he was that science was gonna solve these major problems. And in fact, you, I remember you mentioning, uh, you know, that he thought science would solve pandemics, that he thought science would solve uh, global warming. Um, 
and so do you think that that passion uh, uh, for science and for what science could achieve um, led him astray? I, I definitely think that was part of it. Um, you know, his best friends are people like um, Sid Drell and Lucy Shapiro, who are biologists and um, physicists, and he does not understand what they do, but he he knows that they know better than him, and he really listens to scientists. And when he seemingly most of the time, when he didn't understand someone, he trusted the expert. And um, unfortunately, in this case, he put his trust in Elizabeth because he did not understand blood testing technology and and he trusted Elizabeth. There's something else about the the episode um, uh, about you and, and your grandfather that that caught your attention when you listened to it because you texted me. Um, and it, it was the part where um, uh, she and, and George are speaking at Stanford and uh, he brings up uh, the fact that she's told him uh, that Johns, that they've been working, that Theranos has been working with Johns Hopkins and that they figured out a way to detect um, pancreatic cancer uh, 15 or 17 years uh, before the onset. And uh, that struck a chord with you. And, and I was wondering if you could tell our, our listeners why. Yeah, so with Elizabeth, it's, it's sometimes, I don't even necessarily know how to say this, but she is a master of her craft. And sometimes it's hard to figure out what is a coincidence and what is a perfect manipulation. And my grandfather's first wife, my grandmother, died of pancreatic cancer. And perhaps it's a coincidence that she claimed that they were working with John Hopkins to detect pancreatic cancer 15 years before you have symptoms. Or perhaps she knew that that would um, be the exact right disease that he would understand and resonate with. And it would, um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's kind of messed up. I, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> right. I mean, um, yeah, we'll we'll never know for sure unless she tells us. But um, it sounds like potentially like uh, it was another way that that she used to reel him in. Yeah. I, I want to ask you if you think this verdict is a good thing for Silicon Valley. You're a young entrepreneur in Silicon Valley with your startup. You're, you're part of that ecosystem. Is it a good thing for Silicon Valley? Is it a good thing for corporate America? I saw you tweet uh, yesterday that you hope that your and Erica's actions would inspire other young professionals to hold their leaders accountable. Yeah, um, I do think it's a good thing. Um, I think in Silicon Valley, the lines between reality, vision, and fantasy become often very blurred. And I think hopefully this can serve as a wake-up call that those lines need to be um, distinguished and entrepreneurs need to, to do a better job of saying what they have today, what they hope to achieve in the future. Um, and hopefully we, we venture less into the pure fantasy uh, zone. Um, so I do think it's a good thing for Silicon Valley um, how has your role in the Theranos saga carried into your life? Yeah. So, I mean, this is by far the most negative thing that has really personally happened to me in my life. And, um, now 
I'm trying really hard to turn it into a positive thing and use it as a learning experience, not just for me, but for other people who are willing to listen and, and learn and grow from it. And I've just been amazed at um, how well that's been received. And and I've, um, you know, I, I've been working with professors at, you know, BYU and Santa Clara and Harvard and, and Stanford and um, so many people want to use this story for positive change. And I am so happy to be a part of that. And um, specifically, I, I do want to mention the Signals Network because they do a really good job of working with whistleblowers and connecting them to reporters and to lawyers and to therapists um, and, and to other resources as well um, that the whistleblower may not even know that they need. And I really wish that something like that existed when I was going through this really dark um, period in my own whistleblowing journey. And um, so I'm, I'm working with the Signals Network to um, to make this journey easier for future whistleblowers. And I'm really proud of that work. And I'm, I'm happy to be part of that organization. So you and I have been referring repeatedly to how, you know, this is the outcome of the of the saga. The story is over. The, the final chapter uh, is closing, but actually not quite, right? Because uh, <laughs> Sonny Balwani uh, still has to go on trial. I think uh, his trial begins next month. Um, are you going to keep an eye on that trial? And is it important that he be held accountable too? Yeah, I absolutely think it's important that he be held accountable um, I don't think I'll be following it as closely as I was following following Elizabeth's. I had a pretty close, unfortunately intimate relationship with with Elizabeth, um, with her almost you know becoming like part of my family. Um, so I, I'm for sure more emotionally invested in Elizabeth's trial than I am in Sunny's. But um, I do think I think it's important that that he also. Um, face a jury and and let let a jury and a judge decide um, what his role in this was. You know, one of the most fascinating moments of the trial for me uh, was when on cross-examination, Leach brought up these draft emails that um, Elizabeth and Sonny were sending each other uh, before Sonny responded to you. And um, uh, his original, Sonny's original draft response to your long email to Elizabeth was actually more tame, we learned. Um, and in the margin, Elizabeth wrote uh, stronger, need to go stronger. And, and then the next draft is the, is the draft that became, you know, withering uh, and basically, you know, essentially called you a fool. Um, and, and it was so interesting to me to see that um, that wasn't his original draft and that, and that it, she egged him on uh, to make it more brutal. Um, did, did you did you follow that part? Did, did, did that come to your attention? It wasn't that surprising to me. I always kind of got the feeling that Sonny was, was running this company on the inside with an iron fist. And I always thought that that is how Elizabeth wanted the company to be run. But at the same time, she wanted to have this angelic, save the world um, outward image. And so she couldn't do both. And I think she intentionally brought in Sonny to be the bad guy so that she could be, you know, the good cop. Do you, do you find her allegations of abuse credible? Does that sort of comport with anything that you saw with your own eyes and 
with your experience uh, at Theranos and your experience interacting with both of them? Um, it's hard to say, you know, I didn't, I interacted with Elizabeth a lot more than I interacted with Sonny. It wouldn't be surprising to me if he abused her. I think he's, you know, he's not a good person. I don't think he's going to find many people to come defend his character. Um, I also wouldn't be surprised if she made it up. These are two, two bad people. And in some ways they're almost like a match made in heaven. They're perfect for each other. Uh, looking back at the episode that you went through, uh, I think it was the summer of 2015 and pretty much, you know, for almost a year. Um, is, is that, uh, is that period of your life, uh, completely behind you? Do you ever think about it anymore or, or have you managed to close the book on it emotionally? I've pretty much closed the book on it emotionally. Um, genuinely, since I went on the record with you in 2016, article came out a couple days after my 26th birthday I think um every year after that my life has just been getting better and better and better and I've just all all that terrible stuff feels like it is so far in the past now all right well it was great to to have you on the podcast Tyler um uh I really appreciate uh your feedback did you have any parting thoughts as this uh what 11 year chapter of your life closes (laughs) No, let's shut the door. <laughs> let's move on. Use it to learn and grow, but I don't, I don't think we need to dwell too much on it on the past anymore. It is the final chapter. It is Bad Blood, the final chapter. So let's close that final chapter. Bad Blood, the final chapter, is a Three Uncanny Four production. The show is hosted by me, John Carreyrou. Our show is produced by Lena Richards, Rahima Nasa, and Jennifer Siegel. Emily Saul is our reporter. Laura Mayer is our executive producer. Kevin Seaman is our engineer. Casey Holford composed the theme music. I wanted to take a moment to thank everyone who worked on this show, and also everyone who agreed to be interviewed. Your contributions made this story come alive for our listeners. So thank you, Joe Fuse, Phyllis Gardner, Robert Weisberg, Marie-Roselyne Belizea, Tom Brumet, Lena Castro, Aaron Richardson, Reed Catherine, Diane Parks, Avi Tavanian, Don Schneider, Adam Clapper, David Shoemaker, Aaron Edgar, Eric Wagar, and Tyler Schultz. And a special thanks again to Ken Oletta for sharing his interview tapes with me. I hope you enjoyed Bad Blood, the final chapter. Thanks for listening.